So today we are going to conclude our series in uh, growth in Christ-likeness, or just progressive sanctification. That's where we've been. We've been in there the last, this is the fourth week that we've worked through this series. And it's just, it's just all about how we grow, how we grow up into maturity or into Christ-likeness, into the image of Christ, and how God intends us to, um, to grow in that. And the very first week we looked at some Big picture general principles of growth, just to get you situated in what we're talking about and what the Bible says about that, kind of from a bird's eye view. That was week one, general principles. The second week, we looked at the centrality of faith in the Christian life. So everything kind of is boiled down to trusting, believing God's promises, His truths over the lies that we're tempted to believe and that we're coming out of. So the centrality of faith was week two. And week three was about God's gifts for growth in the local church. So God's given us some gifts or means that he wants to, us to avail ourselves of that will help us in the growth process. And there's a lot of those, but, but most of them can be found in the local church. That's why God created the church. That's why Paul planted churches. That's why he raised up elders. And that's why they, they command us to keep gathering together, uh, to hear preaching, to sing, all those things. We talked about that last week. Today, you know, I was kind of thinking through, how do, I, how do I tie it all together? All right, I want to bring us to kind of ground level, boots on the ground. Uh, I, want us, I don't want you to leave thinking, okay, that was kind of esoteric, so what do I do now uh, in daily life? So today, I just thought one way to sort of tie it all together, if you want to think of it, is sort of like the outflow of, of week two, the centrality of faith. We're going to look, about, look at how do we apply that in the, in the day-to-day. And I'm just entitling this, this topic, as you can see on the screen, Battling Persistent Sin. Battling Persistent Sin. Now, those three words are very important. Battling. So this, this is all about, this lesson is all about how we fight in the Christian life. And fight for growth. So battling, persistent, meaning not just kind of the fly-by-night, Occasional slip up here and there, but these are the these are sort of the patterned sins in your life that are persistent, that are discouraging you, and why this is so important, I think, to, to talk about is because persistent and, and habitual sin is is very discouraging and derailing in our lives. You know, just kind of think of the one or two areas in your life that you're presently struggling with, right? Just kind of get that in your mind. You got it. It shouldn't be too, shouldn't be, take us too long. But get that area in your mind and think about how discouraging it is when you're repetitively sinning in the same ways. Um, and how derailing it is to your Christian life, uh, to your fruitfulness in other areas. And these persistent sin areas, they're, they're the, you can think of them as the primary areas that God is targeting in your life right now. Now, why would I say that? Well, because God is sovereign over everything, including our circumstances. And so he's often going to be putting you in situations and circumstances that's going to be dredging out that thing that's most detrimental to you in the moment, today, right now. So he's, he's dredging that out of your heart. And this is going to be an area that you're going to continue to, to fall in, to sin in, because sanctification is progressive. And, and this is an area that, that's going to take some significant work. To, uh, to uproot and, 
and repent of. So it's one of the primary areas that God's targeting in your life right now, whatever the, the, the sin pattern is. And the danger of not working on this is that this sin will actually harden your heart. Um, if, if we're continually falling in the same areas and we don't know what to do, we're discouraged, and we just sort of give up, a hardening effect will take place uh, over time in that, in that area. And so we, it's incredibly important that we give attention to these persistent um, persistent sins that aren't easy to shake. They kind of keep coming back like a dryer lint, you know, on your, on your clothes. So today I just want us to look at five principles for battling persistent sin. That's going to be our, our proposition today. Five principles for battling persistent sin. I want us to be equipped in the, in the day-to-day. And we've talked about these things before a little bit in the in the centrality of faith lesson in week two. We've talked about them at different times, you know, through Acts and some of the other series that we've done. But I just want to synthesize and bring it all together for you and help you look out for some of the roadblocks in this process. So, number one, first principle, don't respond sinfully to your sin. Now, that seems... Intuitive, but we often go wrong here. Okay, Don't respond sinfully to your sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the scriptures are replete with, with how we should respond to our sin, but, but there's a temptation here. Is that right out of the gate, we actually respond to our sin the wrong way. You've already sinned once. We, I like to say it like this. Don't sin twice. Don't sin again and continue to sort of further Satan's schemes um, in your life as you think wrongly about your sin and you respond to it wrongly. So that brings up a very important question. Well, how do we respond wrongly to our sin, right? What are some of the ways that we do that? Well, I'm just going to give you a few of them that I thought of. This is not comprehensive, but... um, there are ways that I either have responded to sin in the past in my own heart and have had to repent of. So this is, this is all coming out or things I've seen. Number one, or initially, we can respond wrongly or sinfully by denying our sin or ignoring it. By denying our sin or ignoring it. This is the guy that kind of puts his head in the sand and pretends like he didn't actually sin. Um, or just says, no, I, that's, I'm, that's not sin. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to deny it. And the scriptures are pretty clear about this, about how this is a bad, a bad deal. 1 John 1, 8 and 10, two separate verses that we'll look at. John says, if we say we have no sin, if we deny it or ignore it, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, John's known for his sort of black and white Statements. But if this is the pattern in your life, you deny your sin, you ignore it, then the truth can't be in you, is what he's saying. If we say we have not sinned, this is verse 10, we make him a liar. That's God, because God actually says that we have. Okay? And we're saying we haven't. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's a strong warning there about hiding or ignoring, denying our sin. Um, there's other texts on this too, you know, Proverbs, I don't know if I wrote it down here, Proverbs 28, 
13, I believe it is, talks about the person who conceals sin won't prosper. So there's a lot of there's a lot of talk here about about denying or ignoring sin. And so this is the person that, you know, when you confront them, they can never remember doing anything sinful. You know what I'm talking about? Like, OK, this this hurt me yesterday when you said this. Well, I'm, I, don't, I don't remember that. You know, like uh, I, I, if I did that, I'm sorry, but I just really don't remember it. And, and, you know, the first time you're like, OK, benefit of the doubt. But then they never remember anything they do. So um, so the beach, be careful of that. What is what is the motive of this selective forgetfulness? You, you remember other things. Um, why not this? And this is just beware if you're never confessing sin to the Lord in your prayer life. Uh, that's another telltale sign that that you're kind of denying your sin in everyday life. Um, so, but denying it or ignoring it is one way we can just right out of the gate respond wrongly to sin. Okay, so let's say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to ignore it because it's there. I can't get away from it. All right, it's staring me in the face. What else are we tempted to do? Uh, minimize it, right? Minimize our sin. That's another way that we're tempted to respond wrongly. We say things like, oh, it's not that bad. Or we maybe compare ourselves to, you know, this person, person X over here and think, well, at least I'm not there. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to relieve guilt. You're trying to get that off your back by transferring something worse, seeing something worse than another person. And this is a form of, of minimizing sin. You know, it's cliche, but the proverbial white lie. Like, uh, uh, can a lie be white? Um, what does that mean? White lie, simple, you know, it's, it's, it's a little lie. You know, not, not as bad as the big lies. So, minimizing it is just another way of, of responding wrongly, sinfully to your, to, to your sin. You won't be able to deal with it if you're always minimizing it. And trying to, to get out from under the conviction. Another way we do it is by evading or denying responsibility for our sin. By evading responsibility or denying it altogether. Just, that's just not my fault, okay? Or, yeah, it's, I, I know I did this, but man, I really did this because of X. So just some... This is the blame game. You know, it's, it's as old as the garden, right? Adam, what did he do? You know, it's a woman you gave me, Lord. You know, so it's actually, that was kind of a double blame. He blamed the woman and ultimately the Lord for giving her to him. You know, like, you're really the cause of this, Lord. So he's, he's evading and actually denying responsibility. Uh, we say things like, well, I just can't help it. I'm a type A personality. That's why I run you over all the time. You know, it's like, no, you're sinfully rude. That's why you're doing that. Well, if he wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't have gotten so angry. He just makes me so mad. You hear that? If he wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have been angry. Well, from, from a practical standpoint, that's clearly how it looks, right? Like, well, I was fine before you did that. Now you did that, and now I'm angry. So you're the cause, right? So we're assigning responsibility outside of ourselves. We're not responsible. Um, I know I'm crabby, but I just didn't sleep well last night. Okay, can you just... Can you just minimize it? Can you just, uh, it's my sleeplessness. That's the problem. You know, once I get sleep, I'll be better. 
you know, it's definitely a factor, but uh, you're ultimately responsible for, for your sin in that moment. So we try to evade or deny responsibility. That's, that's the blame game, and we're not going to grow in these areas if we're not uh, taking responsibility. This one is huge, and it's a little bit different than the rest. Uh, by self-atoning, we're tempted to respond wrongly to our sin by self-atoning for it. What do I mean by that? I mean, we're trying to punish ourselves in some way so that we feel better about ourselves afterwards. Okay? We try to punish ourselves so that we feel better about ourselves afterwards. Again, we're trying to alleviate the guilt that comes from sin. Nobody likes guilt. And so we do this in so many ways. Uh, it's, it's hard to grab them all. It's like hurting cats. And just, they just keep, we, I just, we find new ways to do this. We feel like we, we, we've let God down, we've got to let God cool down before we come to Him. What is that? Well, I've, I've, it's sort of like a self-atoning. I'm just, Lord, I know you're mad, so I'm just going to let you cool off so I can, I can bring myself before you and you'll accept me based on, you know, my merits of letting you cool down. Feeling like you have to clean yourself up before you come to God, or prove that, or prove your uh, your your genuineness by not sinning in this area for a few days before you'll you know before you come to Him. Like, okay, I'm just not going to sin a few days, and then I'll come and ask Him for forgiveness. Uh, I've got to clean myself up. I've got to make myself presentable to God before I can actually come to Him. That He'll accept me. He'll forgive me if I do that. Self atonement. Thinking that you've got to figure out solutions to your sin before you can come to God for mercy. Right? How many of us do that? That's just so frequent. I've got to figure this thing out before I can actually go to God and appeal to to Him for mercy and forgiveness. And we're often, if if that's you, you're often frantic to fix the problem. Like it's just like a frenzy. You're obsessive about it. You're frantic because it's just... You want to escape the guilt so badly, and you're trying to fix it yourself. And then just another form of this is just self-deprecation. If you hear yourself doing that a lot, you know, I'm just so bad, I'm so terrible. And that's the real in your mind of just how bad and terrible you are all of the time. Uh, That's a form of self-atonement. You're trying to beat yourself up so that you feel better about yourself. And then if you say it to others, sometimes you're trying to, to get them to, you're trying to solicit pity from them so that they console you so that you feel better about yourself. Right? So, man, I'm, I'm telling you, our hearts are deceitful. <laughs> and we go astray in a lot of ways, especially in this area of, of self-atonement. And the crazy thing is this, we're not even into battling sin yet. This is just sort of the door. Okay? The door to get in there. These are all the ways, or some of them, that we can respond wrongly to the conviction, to our sin, when it sets in in these persistent areas. And what is really the, the undercurrent of all of this is that we often merely desire a relieved conscience. We want our conscience to be relieved of the guilt. And I do too. I'm with you. But what we need is forgiveness and a cleansed conscience. That's, that's our fundamental need, not a re, just a temporarily relieved conscience and sort of the, the, the false fixes that we try to, to give ourselves. We need a forgiven and cleansed conscience. And the way to get that is our next principle. 
through honest confession. So if number one was don't, sin, don't respond sinfully to, you, sinfully to your sin, this next one is, is confess your sin, and we could say confess your sin honestly to God. Confess your sin to God. You can open your Bibles if you, if you want back to that text in 1 John. This is so classic that we're tempted to just gloss over it and misunderstand the significance of what the Apostle's saying here. First John chapter 1. I think I put it on the screen for you guys. Yeah. John's writing to this church and he, he's burdened that they not sin. That's his goal. And really all of First John is, is sort of helping them understand, okay, this is how to walk, walk by faith. Here's how to, to imitate Christ and live according to the truth and gain assurance as a result of those things. And so John is all about them knowing that they have eternal life, knowing that they're walking and following Christ. But it's extremely profound how he starts his letter about the need to confess your sin. And he's talking to believers here. To confess and, and obtain forgiveness from the Lord. And he says in, in verse 9, uh, I've got a little composite quote here from, from verse 9 and then chapter 2, 1 and, 1 and 2. He says, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the two promises. Forgiveness and cleansing, which is what we need. He's faithful to do that. Now you're saying, okay, okay well, really? What's the, what's the theological underpinning of this promise? He gives it to us in the next chapter. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, it's a reality. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, wow, Christ is actually advocating for us in some profound way before God, for our sin. How can he do that? The next verse. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what's he saying here? He's saying that Christ absorbed God's wrath for our sins. He is the atonement, not you. So he's the propitiation and he's your advocate before the Father. So when your sins come and and you sin and that happens and you transgress, which John doesn't want you to do, but when you do it, because he knows that we're still in progress, when you do that, we're to humble ourselves and confess that to the Lord. Now you think, confession. Okay, well that's easy, right? Um, in the sense that I'll just tell God that I sinned. Yeah, um, but it's a, little bit, it's a little bit more than that. Um, confession involves a, a number of things. You can write down, sorry, got ahead of myself. You can write down Psalm 32, Proverbs 28, 13 for other, other texts on this. Psalm 32 is like David's own testimony of he concealed his sin for a little while and then he chose to, to not be like a mule, he says, and, uh, and actually confess his sin, honestly talk about it before the Lord and, and repent. And then he felt the, the cleansing, experienced the cleansing of the Lord in Psalm 32. So what does confession involve? Um, well, we could say it like this. I'll, I'll, I'll say a number of things here. 
It means taking full ownership of your sin. Taking full ownership of your sin. So that's why if you do any of those things above, except for the self-atonement, because you are, in that sense, taking ownership of it, but all the other ones, you're not taking ownership. You're blame-shifting, you're denying, you're ignoring, you're doing something other than owning it. So in this case, you have to fully embrace fully embrace that you are the sinner. Okay? It comes from you. You are to blame. Yeah, somebody else may have had a part in your sin, but you are the ultimate cause of it. Right? Proof of that is Jesus Christ. When he was squeezed, righteousness came out. So when we're squeezed, sin comes out. Where does it come out from? Our hearts. Right? So we are the reason that we sin. And we have to take full ownership of it. And if we don't, we can't grow. You will not grow if you don't take full ownership. And what happens in this is that we become convinced of the sinfulness of sin, meaning it's evil. We sin because we love it. We sin because we, we're going to see this, believe certain things falsely that lead us into sin. But as we confess, we're, we're dredging some of that out and we're saying, I know this is evil. I may not know all the underpinnings of it, but I know this is, this is wrong. And I agree with God's assessment of my sin. It has a brokenness element to it. Right. And so we take full ownership of our sin. That's, that's confession. And usually that's where we stop. If we do that, you know, we, we stop at multiple points in this. So I'll, I'll say that a couple of times probably through this. But sometimes we stop here. But we have to appropriate the, the promises that were in First John. Right. Appropriating God's promise of forgiveness and cleansing. So what do I mean by that? I mean, we have to lay hold of that by faith. Okay, so I'm broken by my sin. I confess that sin to God. And I, I'm just saying, Lord, I'm at your disposal. I deserve judgment. And I'm availing myself of your mercy. And then we have to believe that, that that's going to be there. Right? It's actually the, the promise of mercy is what drives us to biblical confession. That's the whole motivation. To confess is to obtain mercy that you don't deserve. And God will grant it. That's what he says right there in First John. So if you're struggling with that today, Load that up in your mind. This is, this is truth. God will provide mercy, whether you feel like it or not. Whether you feel like you've received it or not. This is objective truth. So we must believe it. You must appropriate that. That's what I mean by, by appropriating God's promise of forgiveness and cleansing. And then let's take, you know, worst case scenario, you don't feel an ounce of it. Okay? You don't feel an ounce of it. Well, what I do when that happens is I thank God for His kindness to me. I thank God for his kindness to me and his commitment to changing me. And I, I believe it, you know, and I get up and, and, and go about my day, even if I don't feel any different after I've confessed. So we thank God for his kindness. This helps reinforce us, reinforce the truth into our, into our hearts. And then we ask him for help um, to fight in the battle. Like we, th- we learned in the first lesson, God is the ultimate cause of all of our growth, so we just appeal to him. His throne is the throne of grace for help in a time, time of need. And so ask him for help in the, in the battle. This is all, I think, part of the sort of that initial moment where you choose to respond rightly to your sin. You own it and you confess it to the Lord. I think these are sort of aspects of that. 
And sometimes people stop, you know, stop here at this point. Okay, whew, confess my sin. All right. And now I'm now I'm good. I'm better. Uh, and that, we've got to do this. This is indispensable, right? This is the first step in dealing with persistent sin. But we've got to go beyond merely confessing our sin to God. Um, the scriptures call us not merely to confess it, but look at this. They call us to do a number of things, like forsake it. Proverbs 28, 13. He who confesses and forsakes them, that's his sin, will obtain mercy. Okay? A few other texts, they tell us to kill it. This is the biblical authors tell us to put it to death. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Romans 8, 13. And Colossians 3, 5 is another text that Paul says, says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So kill it. Execute it. Murder it. That's going beyond just confessing it to the Lord and agreeing with God about your sin. Another, just, just to bring all these things together for you, the Scriptures tell us to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self. There's a lot of activity there, isn't it? Put off, be renewed in your minds, put on the new self. That's going way beyond, um, way beyond just confession. Confession is essential, but there's more to the battle. And that's what we're going to get into in the rest, of our, the rest of our principles here. Number three, expose the sin behind the sin. Expose the sin behind the sin. So we're, if we're going to kind of take a step further, what do we mean by this? Expose the sin behind the sin. Well, Scripture is clear that, that well, Jesus, or we say it like this, talks about our hearts producing sins. Um, specific sins spring from the same source, our corrupt hearts. Jesus talks about that, that we sin out of our hearts. Um, and you can look up that text later. And our sin is like the check engine light uh, in our cars, revealing that the engine is, something's wrong with the engine. Okay, So the engine is your heart, in the analogy. So your heart is off, it's wrong, something's going on, it's craving sin, and so you're sinning in, cer- in a certain way. But then why? What's, what's going on here? And guys, we're going to have to move quickly through this, so I'll send you these notes. Uh, don't worry about writing them all down. We've got to move quickly. Yeah, sorry, we've got we to gotta look into... <laughs> we gotta, we do have to move quickly. And uh, we have to look into actually what's going on under the hood, you know, in the engine here. So what's going on? Paul says that we've exchanged God's truth for a lie and that we've worshipped false gods. We've exchanged truth for a lie and that we've worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1. In other words, we've embraced deception because we're deceived. We've embraced this deception and and we we worship false gods as a result of that. So that means we need to to work backwards. Oh man, my things are off here. Sorry. We've got to work backwards from this. Okay, so if, if we're sitting kind of from the outside... And we trace that back to the inside. That's what I mean by working backwards. We've got to work from the more external sin back into our hearts. And we're looking for the reigning desires and cravings that motivated the sinful behavior. That's what we're looking for. The, the reigning desires and cravings, meaning those things that you think you must have in order to be happy, the things you've got to, you've got to get, those are desires that aren't just good desires, right? They're desires that are taking reign in your life. 
They, they are ruling you, in other words. They're sitting on the throne of your heart. They're dictating your decisions. These reigning desires that, that motivate the sinful behavior. That's why you do what you do, right? And this will lead us, if we kind of follow the trail, it will lead us to our idols. Meaning, the, the functional gods, the things that we're worshipping, the things that we're saying we've got to... We're giving our, our time and resources and energy to this thing because we really believe that it can satisfy. We believe that it can provide. We believe that all the things that God promises to us, we assign to this created thing. So our desires, if we trace them out, will lead back to these, these functional gods or these idols. And the idolatry reveals that we've believed a lie somewhere in this process. We have been duped to think that a created thing can fulfill, can accomplish what only the Creator can accomplish for His creation. So, we've, we're off. We've believed a lie. We've been deceived, hook, line, and sinker, and we believed it, and so we're sinning as an outflow to try to get that thing that we desperately want. This is the anatomy of our hearts. This is the anatomy of what's going on under the hood. And this may be some new ideas for you. Um, it may not be. You know, if we've talked before, you, you probably have, have, are... are have seen how we we handle some of these things. But we need help here. This is the essence of deception. We need help, and we often need a pastor or a discipler to help us to to discover what's what's wrong in here. This is, again, the nature of being deceived. You don't know it, right? You're you're duped. So you need some help. You know you're sinning. You know you're sinning in this persistent way, but you don't, you can't, it's hard to see what's going on down there. So we need each other in this process. And this also means that we've got to spend appropriate time reflecting on our sin patterns. I don't know, you don't like to do that. You've got to go back to it. It's icky. It makes you feel bad. But God loves you. Okay? Christ is your atonement. He's the basis for God's love for you. And that doesn't change. So it frees you to, to examine your sin, to really get after dealing with it, thinking through it. And these, I just listed some diagnostic questions here for you that uh, I find very helpful in my own life. So I just generally, these are, these are from Ted Tripp, I think, one of the Tripp brothers. Uh, don't remember which one. And it's actually for your kids. But it applies to us. What was going on? Okay, so why, why, why did you sin? What were the circumstances surrounding what was happening when you, when you sinned? What was I thinking and feeling during that? That moment when I sinned, what was going on in my brain? What was going on in my mind? Uh, in my affections, in my emotions? What was happening? We don't sin in a vacuum. Things, have, things are happening in our, in our minds and our hearts long before we sin. Okay, what did I do in response to the thinking and feelings? How did I act in response to those things? And usually that's where the sin is, Right? What was I seeking to accomplish when I did that? Why did I do it? This gets at the motivational level. What, what, what was the goal, you know, in that, that lashing out or whatever that was? And then what was the result? What was the result? What, what happened as a result of my sin? That is so helpful to connect all those dots together and seeing, seeing all this happen. This is the moment of your temptation. And oftentimes it's recurring. Because this is the area that God's working on you. So this is sort of some diagnostic questions that help in getting underneath what's going on here. 
These kind of questions help us to see the connections between what we're thinking, the truth or the lies in this case, and what we do as a result of, of the, those, the truths of the lies. It also helps us to uncover our motives and desires. And as you answer these kinds of questions, you'll begin to discover deep cravings that come from, from believing the lies. Okay? Now, just really quick. I know all this is just really kind of esoteric. Let me give you an example. Okay? From my own life. So, here we go. You know that for the past, you know, Eleanor's been not a great sleeper. Which means she wakes up in the middle of the night. Often. And I, for the longest time, was getting very angry by that. Very angry. So let's, let's go back kind of to the beginning and think about, okay, I'm starting to feel some conviction for my anger. So in a moment, well, I'm tempted to blame shift, right? Well, it's because I'm not getting sleep. Well, it's because, man, if I can just, it's, it's not my fault, right? So all these temptations. So finally when the Lord would have let down and I said, nope, it's coming out of my heart because the Lord's wanting to dredge this out of me for me to learn. Okay, and to grow and to be more like Christ, even in the middle of the night, right when I wake up from a dead sleep. So, okay, all right, Lord, if that's what you're going to teach me, you're going to teach me that, like every other parent known to man, okay, and this is not unique to me. Okay, so I'm waking up, I'm angry, so I'm working on that, so I'm angry, I'm, I'm, I'm lashing out, so I know that there's things that are happening, things that are cravings that I want. I want sleep, you know? If I don't get this, I can't survive. I can't, I can't function. I can't do my job. I can't counsel people. And it, and it exacerbates as a pastor. Lord, do you not want me to, to do these things in ministry? And then, and then, and then. All, the, all the thoughts are going on in my mind in the middle of the night. How am I going to teach? Usually it's on Saturday nights is the worst. You know? And so it's like all of these thoughts and feelings come up. And cravings that I have of a good thing like sleep. But it's a ruling thing. It's a thing I'm saying I must have in order to survive. Now, I know that all you nursing and people, yes, that's true. At some level, we do need sleep. But I'm saying I must have this. What the Lord began to expose in me is just this, this desire to not trust him in that time. You know, this lie that I must have this eight hours of sleep in order to function at the capacity that I want. And what he began to teach me is in those moments, I am so aware of my weakness the next day. And in that moment, it's an opportunity for me to, to learn to love my wife and to, to, to respond with just compassion to my child who can't even help that they're doing it. And just all these things that the Lord began to teach me. In that, but he began to expose some lies that I was believing in those moments. And I began to really uproot that. No, God's sovereign over every circumstance, including the crying, my crying baby. So I'm going to trust him. He's got good purposes in mind for me in this. It's not, he's not trying to thwart his, his mission in my life. You know, he's not trying to thwart the ministry of the church. He's trying to teach me to be dependent on him. And so as I began to get on board with that, it took a while, but as I began to submit to that purpose and submit to those truths in my, my heart, I began to think, how should I then respond in that moment? How should I respond? So then we began, I began to work some of that out. So again, I just want to give you an illustration of exposing the sin behind the sin. So there's, there's things that are happening behind the sinful actions. We've got to move quickly. We've got two more. We can, be, we can be brief. The next one's obvious. Renovate your mind with Christ's truth, which is what I was just getting at in my own illustration. Renovate your mind with Christ's truth. Once we see the lies clearly, we need the truth to supplant those lies. 
And Christ promises that His people will know the truth and the truth will set them free. I love that. When I'm enslaved to lies, I'm in bondage. The idol wants me destroyed. But Christ wants me free. So, He's promised to set us free. And He does it by renovating our minds with the truth. And we've got to get specific. So, Christ's truth sets us free. And transformation comes as we renew our minds. Okay, practically. We've got to get specific. Find specific truths, promises, warnings, principles, etc. that apply to this particular situation. Spend time actively meditating on these truths. Writing out implications and asking others for help in those implications. So what, what does this mean? How, sh- how should this affect me, right? Think through behaviors like that would flow if you really believe this particular truth. So sometimes I say, like, if I really believe this, if I really did in this moment, how would I respond? And that, that typically is the Christ-like behavior that the Lord wants wanting to cultivate in you, Right? So, again, this is all renovation of the mind. Thinking through the truth and how it applies in this particular situation. And you're laying out sort of a new vision for how you're going to respond in this particular tempting situation. And you're you're going to think through the times of temptation when you're going to be the most susceptible to falling back into those sin patterns. And you're going to be ready for them versus them overcoming you just out of the blue. So this is all part of renovating your mind with Christ's truth. And the last principle, I'm trying to remember my noun, the last principle that I want to give you guys today is yield your will to Christ in obedience. Yield your will to Christ in obedience, okay? Again, don't, don't write all these things down. We're just going to breeze through them. Ready? Christ is faithful to bring new opportunities for you to exercise your newfound belief. He's going to do it because He loves you. Because He wants you to grow. So He's the sovereign one over all of our circumstances. He's going to squeeze you again and give you a chance to bench press. You're right? To do some reps in the growth to maturity. He's going to do that. So be ready. And growth happens in the small, seemingly insignificant moments of your life as you choose to believe Christ. That's how it happens. That's the magic moment. Right? is when you say, I'm going to crucify what I want and believe Christ in this moment, in this persistent sin area. And when the temptation happens and your, your natural inclination is to sin, you go back to what you know. Right? It's not, you're not going to operate off that lie anymore. You're going to operate off the truth now. There's a new king in town, new sheriff in town. It's the truth. And he's going to govern how, Christ is going to govern how you respond. And now you're going to yield your life to Christ in that moment in obedience to Him. And you're not going to feel like it. You're going to feel like doing the opposite. Feel like being anxious. Feel like blowing up at that person. You're going to feel like slumping back off depression and not doing anything. That's what you're going to feel like. But what you're going to do is you're going to obey Christ because of what He said. Right? That's the, that's the faith that yields obedience. And the pain of the kill is normal in the process of putting to death. It's normal. It means like it hurts to do this. Uh, it's not easy. Your flesh isn't just going to roll over. Okay? It's a beast that's got to be slain. And it requires effort and intensity. The pain of the kill is normal in the process of putting sin to death. And we starve our old inclinations as we actively choose to act in ways 
contrary to those old inclinations. Think of that. You're starving them. You're locking them up. They're going to die from starvation. You know, you're not going to let them, even though you're, it's, it's hard, think of that's a helpful mental picture. We starve our old inclinations as we actively choose to act in ways that are contrary to those old inclinations. And this is cool. Every act of obedience is pounding the truth more deeply into your heart to become convictional, to where you're not easily swayed by your emotions anymore, your circumstances. This is the, the you're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine or, or every new emotional fad that you kind of are involved in. Not that the emotions are bad, but you're not. That's not, that's not the reality. You're, being, you're, you're anchoring your life on the truth now. And we become less governed by our fluctuating emotions and more governed by objective truth. Governed, meaning led by the truth. Right? That's, that's, how, we, that's how we act. That's what we do. And every single one of these small acts of faith-filled obedience is to be celebrated. Every one of them. You're not going to conquer the mountain. You're not going to blow it all up in one, in one act. So celebrate every one of those moments of victory. Every one of those moments of small obedience because that's God at work. That's Him producing the willingness and the desire and the ability to say yes to Christ and to say no to sin. You have to see it that way. You can't just like try to think, I'm going to be completely you know, temptation-free tomorrow. Progress is going to be slow, and it's often going to feel like regression. It will feel that way. But don't be surprised by the feelings, by, by, by how that comes across in those moments. It will be slow, but Christ is at work to drive out the enemies of your heart. And the last thing I'll say here is to stay motivated by the promises of God. Stay motivated by the promises of God here. Remember, all the way back to our first lesson, right? God is the one who began the work in you, and He's going to see it to completion. You did not open your own eyes. God did. And so God's committed to the renovation project. And He's more committed to it than you are. Infinitely more committed to it than you are. And so He's going to see it through. His throne is a throne of grace to supply you with all the help you need in your weakest of moments. He knows your frame. And what he is committed to in your heart is a glorious thing. It's making you like the most ideal human that has ever graced our planet. We've got to see it that way. This doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it is a gloriously good pursuit. It has value in every way, Paul says. So, as we tie it all up, stay fixed on these promises and truths. As you diligently strive, as you use Peter's language, as you make every effort in this process of sanctification. Let's pray.